This is the intersection. The intersection. This is the Intersection Podcast, recorded Thursday, the 19th of October, 2017. Episode 23, A Noble Failure. The Intersection Podcast is only made possible through the support of its listeners and sponsors. If you have a product or service that you feel may appeal to our audience, please contact sponsor at intersectioncast.com. Hello and welcome again to The Intersection, the podcast that bridges together the worlds of tech and pop culture. Um, we've got lots to look forward to in the world of technology. The next week we've got the uh, the pre-orders uh, for the iPhone 10 opening up and all the hysteria that will come with that. But that's next week, so let's stick with uh, the world of the movies for this week and back to discussing the latest in uh, film and television, which means... I'm pleased to present again Bronson Green, who's come back to join us to discuss such matters. Bronson, how are you doing? Yeah, as always, I'm very good. I'm above ground and I'm breathing. Thank you. Uh, what about yourself? You good? I'm good. I'm also above ground and breathing, which is uh, which is good all around, I suppose. Uh, what have you been up to anyway this past uh, couple of weeks? Anything interesting? Or? Yeah, just the usual, I suppose. Um, a few movies watched, a uh, bit of... Uh, Transformers fandom uh, sort of uh, consumed and geeked out in and uh, watching a bit of sports actually Um, a little bit of football which actually reminds me there's a couple of things that we got wrong on our last podcast I'll just put that right before we kick off okay so I I think I I mentioned the Star Wars trailer was going to premiere on American TV on Fox uh, during the, the Monday night NFL that was incorrect, of course. I'd, I'd just completely forgotten. Fox no longer distribute Star Wars. It's owned by Disney, who, of course, own ABC. Right. So that was the network on upon which the trailer debuted. And then um, I think there might have been one or two other things we also got wrong. So uh, uh, they escape me at the moment, actually. If I remember, I'll, I'll bring them up later. But apologies for any of our listeners who spotted our erroneous podcasting. Oh, and also the director of Blade Runner 2049. We can never pronounce his name, but his name is Denny Villeneuve. There you go. We're going to get it right now. Denny Villeneuve. Fantastic. Uh, Denny Villeneuve. But, uh, won't, won't disrespect him again by getting his name wrong. No, 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 no. And we're going to get into discussion about Blade Runner and, and, and the Blade Runner sequel and discussion about the Star Wars trailer a little bit later on. But I want to ask you right at the beginning, um, are you still watching Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, a few nights ago I watched episode five, yes. Right, because I caught that too. Um, and uh, I don't know, there's something a little bit off about this um, this modern Star Trek. Um, what, was your, what was your thoughts on the episode? Um, a lot like the one that preceded it, I enjoyed the episode. Um, there was a lot of merits. For all the merits, however... The reservations that we both have are still there, and it continues as a love-hate relationship. Um, immediately, when the F-word was dropped, the F-bomb, I think it's used two or three times in that one scene, when that happened, immediately I thought, uh-oh, this is going to cause a bit of controversy. Uh, 
Star Trek, obviously, over the decades has been a show which I think you can watch as a family. Um, I mean, I remember when I was four watching Kirk fighting the Gorn in uh, reruns of the original series on, on, on BBC <laughs> Two. Uh, I was actually uh, scared witless of the Gorn, if I'm to be honest with you. <laughs> um, uh, the, the Gorn, of course, which was pretty much, uh, from a design point of view, ripped off wholesale by Star Wars, wasn't it, as uh, the bounty hunter Bosk? But anyway, we won't get into that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, apart from the F-bombs, there was the violence as well. We've seen a bit more violence, um, not just on-screen violence, but the mention that the Klingons actually ate poor Captain George Owl, oh, yeah. the Shell Yo character, which was obviously supposed to come across as horrific, wasn't it? And it kind of did. And then uh, it's also kind of racy, isn't it? I mean, in the, the episode we were just talking about, episode five, I think there was a, a little uh, thing thrown in where a female Klingon was infatuated sexually, probably, with her human Starfleet uh, captor. And, of course, in the previous episode before that one, there was a bit of flirting going on between some Klingons. So, um, oh, not to, not to mention the the, the very uh, domestic scene between the two homosexual members of the crew. Um, and, and we only realized that they were a gay couple in episode five with the doctor on the discovery um, and the uh, the engineer, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. So, I mean... I'll tell you what, what I'll do is let, let me just give you my feedback on what I made of all that. And then um, I'm sure you will compare notes with me. So I'll just take it one thing at a time. Well, let's the, just, quick, before, you, before you start, let's just, just, let me just briefly sort of uh, recap what happens in the episode. I won't spoil too much, but essentially um, the Klingons have clocked on to the, uh, the spore drive technology that, um, that um, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the USS Discovery has been using. Uh, they, they don't fully understand it, but they want to know how the ship is able to just disappear and reappear like a ghost in different parts of space. Um, and uh, what they do is they, they come up with a plot to basically um, uh, kidnap uh, Captain Lorca and imprison him and try and torture him to find out exactly how that technology works. That's essentially what the episode's about. Absolutely. Absolutely, with a and with a cameo from Harry Mudd, who who was in a couple of episodes of the original series, and we see him as a slightly younger man. Um, and and I actually thought they uh, wrote him very well, and the actor who played him pretty much caught his essence mm. as well. Um, what did you make of that, by the way, the Harry Mudd um, um, cameo? It was a nice little reference. I mean, the show seems to be, um, I, I, mean, I mean, little bit nice little references all over the place. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't think, you know, that that was essentially all it was. It was a nice reference. That's all. Yeah, it was completely unsurprising. We we pretty much knew straight away that we would get stuff like this from 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 the moment we discovered the. The discovery was going to be set uh, 10 minutes, 10 years before Kirk and Spock in the original series. Um, but I thought they handled it well. I mean, if they handled those little in-jokes and cameos that well, then happy days. I mean, um, I don't mind that. I don't yeah, mind yeah. little cameos like that. Cameos like that are fine. I mean, I understand the situation. It goes back to what you're saying about, oh, it's a little bit more racy, it's a little bit more violent than, you know, what you, what you expect from Star Trek. But they, they need to appease modern TV audiences because primarily this show is on, I mean, it's not on broadcast TV. It's on um, a streaming service. So they need to pull in 
subscribers. Um, but, um, you know, so you've got the conflict between that and keeping the, the core Star Trek fan base happy. So you need to have these references here and there. And I don't mind, you know, the Harry Mudds appearing, but one thing that I fear, and I still fear it, is when we start seeing Kirk and Spock and, you know, and, and those characters just, just pop in and save the day. I know it's 10 years before, but I can see them going in that direction if they need to, if basically if they, if they need to save the show, if the ratings go down, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think it all comes down to how they handle each one of those characters or references. But you're right, the show is caught in betwixt betw and between, isn't it? Yeah. On the one hand, it's trying to be Star Trek um, and please Trekkies. And, and so fans like us, I wouldn't class us Trekkies, but we're still more than casual fans. Um, and then on the other hand, as I say, post-Sopranos or whatever, and, and in the day where you've got Game of Thrones, which is a phenomenon, whether you like it or not, um, and they're trying to keep up and they're trying to drop all those little things in. Um, I mean, the bad language for me, I didn't mind it, but it did feel forced. It did feel cheap that they needed to do that. Um, yes, and then make the, a joke the, of it, yeah. This, yeah. Um, the sex is okay, as long as they don't go too overboard. I mean, I don't want them to get gratuitous. You know, we don't, for example, need to see aliens copulating or whatever. Um, the third one, which would be um well so the third one the, the other thing that that was surprising was the gay couple the two major characters who are a gay couple mm -hmm. that i don't mind you know that i don't mind because star trek's always been progressive and humanist and forward-looking and it's it's supposed to blaze trails i know it's not really blazing a trail because there's been plenty of tv shows where lead characters have been uh, bisexual or, or homosexual but Star Trek has always led the way with um, the fight against prejudice. So having, you know, presenting those two characters as, as a you know, very, very kind of uh, domestic scene when they're brushing their teeth. Um, Bickering, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was almost cringeworthy. Listen, I mean, yeah, like in Deep Space Nine, for example, you had Cole Meany, the Irish actor, the Chief O'Brien, and he, um, I think his wife she was called mako i think if i remember correctly a japanese lady mm. that was a little bit of a blazing a trail kind of thing because you don't get too many interracial couples on television but their kind of constant domesticity being used to get on my nerves i'd be like sitting there thinking oh, can we get away from these two and get to some sci-fi so i hope on this discovery um see them being progressive and whatever but we don't need to see too many domestic scenes and stuff and too much emphasis on their relationship and we don't need to see them bickering like Uhura and Spock were in that stupid Star Trek film by J.J. Abrams yeah that abomination I mean we don't that's right we don't need to we don't need Star Trek doesn't need to make these political points repeatedly every single episode we get it okay they're a gay couple great keep the bickering aside and let's see how they how they um how they how, how they how they how they function in terms of members of of the crew, the ship, and this is one of my problems about this show. Actually, is that it's too preoccupied with the same set of characters. I'm probably thinking about oh maybe four four characters that 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 we know so far, five episodes in. We but we see all these other members of the crew, but we don't we haven't got the foggiest about them at all. We don't know anything about them. In fact, I would argue I don't even know their names. 
Yeah, um, and considering it's only going to be 15 episodes, um, it's a challenge for them to do that. I mean, it would be nice if they did what they used to do, where they produce you know 30 episodes for a season. I'd be happy with that, you know. But it looks like they can't with this for for a number of reasons. Primarily, I would guess budget, because it's obvious that there's a lot of money lavished on this show. But look, I mean, again, for me, I've watched five episodes so far i mean enjoying it um there was a moment actually at the end of episode five when they released that creature into space and it oh, uses it yeah and and and, and, it, and it basically flies away happy sort of thing that was very much a star trek moment wasn't it and i was like you know okay that's ending on a kind of an uplifting note yeah, so, I mean, overall, the show's kind of a combination of the cringeworthy, the brilliant, and the not-so-brilliant. So, it's, it's a mixed bag. I'm, I'm glad Star Trek's back. I'm glad it's um, they're staggering the episodes weekly, So, so because I wouldn't want to binge on this show. Yeah, I'm happy about that, yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned that last week. So, so I thought about that, and I thought, yeah, that was a good decision by them. Glad Star Trek's back. Glad it's got us talking. I think so. Um, I, you know, there are certain things that rub me up the wrong way with this show. Uh, things I can't ignore. I mean, you mentioned the bad language, right? Fair enough. Let's hope that's a one-off just for cheap comedy. But even things like, you know, the captain, Captain Norker. I mean, he's a little bit, I said this before, he's a little bit too unhinged for my liking. Um, you know, he doesn't really seem to be respected by his crew. Um even in a situation where he was imprisoned and he was tortured and what have you, and and essentially he um, he basically um, double crosses um, Harry Mudd because there's another prisoner in there who, who apparently is, uh, is is a Starfleet officer who's the one who the Klingon has the Kling, the female Klingon has an infatuation with, and basically they double cross Harry Mudd and they leave him and they leave him there to die i mean we know he doesn't die but that's that that's how they've left him you know without any hesitation this starfleet captain has left someone there to die i i, I felt that was a little bit weird as well um and after beating him up as well they beat they, they punches him a few times too um yeah, I, suppose, I suppose the immediate thought there is that kirk and picard and probably janeway and um and and uh what was avery brooks captain's name i can't believe cisco benjamin cisco Benjamin Cisco, right? They and even Arthur um, Archer, for that matter, none of them would have done that. But having said that, Janeway did um, murder like billions of Borg, didn't didn't she? So, in the final episode of Voyager, so so maybe she would have left Harry Mudd there. Who knows? Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe. Um, but uh, I, I mean, so so essentially, Lorca takes um, this guy, this this Starfleet officer who's imprisoned, who I think his name is Tyler. Or something like that, and um, so he takes him back to the ship Discovery, you know, and obviously he's going to join the show. But I, isn't it obvious to you that he's he's obviously a Klingon spy? I mean, isn't that impression you got? Um, no, I hadn't thought of that. No, I I try and not to second guess the writers when I watch TV shows. I let them get away with a lot, but okay, now that you mention it, it's a possibility possible spoiler there but it's just my just my prediction but anyway we'll find out it's i mean at the end of the day criticisms aside it, it it is something actually i look forward to watching now it's nice to have star trek back on tv as you said um yeah and so in that respect can't really complain right 
So, um, from Star Trek to Star Wars, um, had a bit of news on Tuesday. Um, the uh, the uh, second spin-off movie, um, uh, the Han Solo movie, has been given a title. Ron Howard announced that on by Twitter on Tuesday uh, to be called Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, I absolutely don't have any enthusiasm about this film. I don't think it's necessary. I'm not looking forward to it. It is, however, due to be released in May, uh, May of next year, and I suspect we'll probably see a trailer or something um, when uh, The Last Jedi opens. How do you feel about this Han Solo movie? Yeah, I'm not enthusiastic about it either, but um, I'll be pleased when it's in the cinemas. I'll, I'll, I'll go and watch it. It's... Uh, as I mentioned before, it's a little bit like when it's actually my brother uh, last year when he he got a bunch of his comic books out from from storage. I actually forced him to get them out. I'll be honest, mm-hmm. and he, he he had um, he had these collected comics, these these graphic novel type books, which had collected the Marvel comics, uh, Marvel Star Wars comics. Beg your pardon from the late seventies, early eighties, and, and and he had dozens and dozens of those. And I literally just picked out a couple of stories and read them, and um, they weren't particularly good, but it was fun. It was fun reading those stories and experiencing adventures with familiar characters, Um, adventures which were obviously very limited because there's no suspense built in there because you know know on Luke and Leia are going to survive. But I enjoyed them anyway as almost a disposable, consumable entertainment. That's how I regarded Rogue One. That's how I'm going to regard the Hunter Solo movie. So from that point of view, I'll enjoy it, but you're right. I don't, I don't think about it at all. I've got no anticipation for it. I've got no, it doesn't intrigue me in the slightest. Mm. And, and I said this before, I won't go into it too much because we don't know any, we, ha- we don't know anything about it to be perfectly honest. Uh, but I don't think it will perform as well as Rogue One. Um, Rogue One did particularly well because of Vader. And I just don't think um, there's anything compelling about this movie to casual audiences who are basically the bread and butter there it's it, it, it it's bringing in the casual audiences that makes the money really um just more nostalgia and really in terms of familiarity was there's the millennium falcon again chewy um that's it really i mean we have a bunch of um unknown actors playing younger versions of han solo and lando but that's not gonna that's not gonna draw people in yeah, we've had our Chewy fix. We've had our Millennium Falcon fix um, with, with the, the Force Awakens, and uh, yeah, I mean, how are they going to try and push those nostalgia buttons? Um, it will be interesting to see. But as I say, look, if it entertains me over two hours as much as some of those comics did, and they weren't particularly well written comics, they were drawn in the classic Marvel style. I got a warm fuzzy feeling in my heart when I was reading them made me feel like a kid again, like I was a kid in the eighties. And, um, if the film gives me a little bit of nostalgia or whatever, I'll, I'll walk out there with a big dappy smile on my face and that's it. I'm not going to regard it as a, as a film anywhere near in the league of, you know, episodes one to six. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you what, though. I'll tell you what gave me a warm fuzzy feeling in my heart. Seeing the trailer for the last Jedi. And, you know, I won't lie, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to feel that way because um, I thought we would, especially after the first two 
two teasers? I think we've had two, haven't we? Yeah, I, I thought we'd be underwhelmed, but I must admit it was a very good trailer. Now, I did um, admittedly stay up uh, and sort of catch it when it was broadcast during the um, the, the, the American football game. Um, I mean, I won't mention how, but I did. Um, there's always one, isn't there? Yeah, there's God. always one. Uh, but I did that anyway, nonetheless. And I just thought it was a really good trailer. It was just great to hear Luke Skywalker speak. I think Mark Hamill, you know, in in in, in the very few shots of him we saw, we saw on screen, I, I can see he was giving it his all in terms of acting. Um, it was, it's, I mean, I was invested, emotionally invested in what Luke Skywalker was doing in that trailer, Ray's journey to an extent, uh, Kylo Ren. I didn't give much a damn about the secondary characters, to be quite honest. I didn't care for seeing Finn again, or uh, I think we saw sh a shot of him sort of battling Captain Phasma, whatever her name is, um, and Poe Dameron, and uh, those characters I don't particularly care about at all. Um, but Ray's journey, yeah, that interests me. Um, I think it will be an awful shame if she is not of skywalker lineage and after watching this trailer i'm even more convinced that she's not um but i am looking forward to the movie and it did make me feel you know, sort of hyped up and pumped up for it what about you i'm happy that you had that reaction because i didn't have the same enthusiastic reaction but i did enjoy the trailer it was better than i expected and it was fantastic to see mark hamill in a number of shots with spoken dialogue and you know it's good to see luke back is what i'm saying um and but for me it just it pushed a lot of the buttons that have already been pushed i mean look uh, kylo ren's already killed his father there was a snippet in the trailer where it looked like he was about to annihilate you know his mother um that would solve a few problems i mean i don't mean that with any offense at all but that would actually solve a few problems if that was to happen in that way it did seem like he was um about to attack i mean obviously we could be misled with these trailers where they're cut but he was about to uh um uh, uh, basically attack a ship that on which his mother was on and i think we i think we have been misled uh, by that trailer i don't think that's that him killing leia like that i don't think that's going to happen um, they wouldn't show in the trailer if it was going to happen, in my opinion. And also the, the bit where they try and make it look like um, Ray's being seduced by Kylo Ren. I think they've cut together snippets from different scenes there. That's a little bit mischievous again. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit of misdirection going on, which is fine. You know that you expect that from trailers, especially I guess from Star Wars. If there are a couple of big twists in this film, they're probably trying to keep them uh, hidden which is a good thing, of course. Um, I think we see the, the Jedi School or the Academy in ruins, don't we? And we see Luke Luke's hand come out of the wreckage. Um, Flashback, you think? Well, do you know what? Um, you said something where you, you took offence to there being flashbacks yeah. in a Star Wars film. Now, we're going to talk about Blade Runner a little bit later on, and Blade Runner also had flashbacks in it. And do you know what? I don't like them in these movies because the original Star Wars movies in the 80s, uh, you know, 77 to 83, they didn't have flashbacks in them. The original Blade Runner didn't. You know what they say, don't you? That it's lazy filmmaking whenever you put in flashbacks or voiceover into yep. a film. Yep. And they, just, they just seem to be doing that so much 
these days. I think you just need to hold back on stuff like that. And um, the more I come to think of it, I don't like Star Wars having these flashbacks. It's far more powerful to suggest something and keeping it off screen. A bit like when uh, Alec Guinness is telling Luke when he's in his um, Adobe hut on Tatooine about Luke's father, who he really was, wasn't a navigator and a spice freighter. It's quite powerful. That that's that's one scene by itself almost had our imaginations absolutely absolutely we didn't need to see that on the screen yeah yeah for 20 years everyone started directing their own version of the prequels in their heads almost based entirely on that one scene uh, and hence why lucas was on a hiding to nothing i don't think he could ever live up to the expectations that people had by that point no. um, it's far more powerful to keep this stuff off camera yeah i mean i i, I totally agree with that um just just sort of recapping over what actually happens in the trailer so luke uh mentions so luke luke seems to be uh very reluctant uh very reluctant to train ray um initially i mean that's the impression we're getting um and he seems to again we could be misled but he seems to fear the amount of power that she has and we know that she seems to be for someone who has no jedi training whatsoever or she seems to be extremely powerful um and extremely quick um, at manipulating or using the force, so to speak. Um, and, you know, he says something along the lines of um, he's only seen that type of um, that raw power once before and it didn't scare him then, but he's scared now or something like that. Or it didn't scare him enough then or he's scared now. Some, some line like that. Who do you think he's talking about? Yeah, so a lot of people are, gonna, are just going to turn around and say that it's, uh, they're going to assume that that, that is Kylo Ren that Luke's referring to. A lot of other people will subscribe to that conspiracy theory or spoiler plot point that's flying around out there at the moment that, in fact, he could be referring to Rey, her being maybe not a Skywalker directly, but something else. Um, maybe some kind of immaculate conception by the force or something. There's a theory going around out there. It's a bit spoilerish, so we won't discuss it in depth. If it does turn out to be the latter, um, I think that's going to be terrible because it's a terrible idea. The one that I've sort of read on the, on the web, I hope it's not. Is this idea to do with Anakin without spoiling it? I've heard something like that. Anakin Skywalker. It might well do. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I see. (laughs) So I don't really want to spoil things for our listeners just in case this proves to be true. So I'm not going to go into detail about it. But this theory would be really, if, if you're thinking about the same thing I'm thinking about, be really difficult to explain to casual audiences seeing this movie and even more difficult for them to swallow. Um, I don't think they'll do that. I don't think that's what it is. Um, I think... It, Luke is talking about Kylo Ren. That is it. He trained, obviously he spent a lot of time with Kylo Ren. We learn in The Force Awakens that um, he, he trained him and he became too powerful or rather too reckless with his power. And that's why Luke went to hide and he, he feels responsible. I think it's as simple as that. This is yeah, Disney Star Wars after all. I hope it is as simple as that. And um, my theory, and this isn't spoilerish because this is just me thinking out loud, I, I'm still hoping that my original theory that Ray and Kylo are, um, or, or Ray and Ben, maybe we should call them that, they're siblings, 
And um, that would also go with the fact that a lot of the expanded universe stuff that came about in the 80s and 90s usually involved a couple of twins. Yep. Um, and I know that uh, Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. Abrams, they borrowed liberally from the um, ex- uh, expanded universe. Um, so I, I think and I hope it's that. It just makes a lot more sense and it carries on the Skywalker story. If that's the case, then obviously what will happen is towards the end of the movie, um, Kylo Ren will be the one to reveal that information to Rey. Much like the twist in The Empire Strikes Back, probably around the same point as well. Well, it's starting to take shape as just as Force Awakens was a pastiche of the original trilogy, especially if A New Hope. It is starting to look like this is basically a rehash of Empire Strikes Back, right down to instead of have us having snow on Hoth, we've got those salt flats on us on a planet somewhere. Um, Vatats. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The, or the gorilla walkers, I, I think they're called. And mm. um, Luke's reluctance, Yoda's reluctance, so on and so forth. And yeah, not crazy about that idea, but it's uh, it's probably what they're doing. And so it's, especially considering that they're making this up as they're going going along. Some, Ryan Johnson's probably figured that's that's a great idea, and that's probably what he's done. That's <laughs> likely, yeah. Um... So, um, uh, oh, Snoke, that's it. Um, Supreme, was it, what's his title again? Supreme something yeah. Snoke. The Supreme Leader Snoke. He's not leader, of any, like he's not leader of anything, is he? Um, no, he's, he's leading the, uh, the, the First Order from the Shadows, isn't he? Well, the First Order are just some... I mean, but they don't have any power. This is the thing that really bothers me about this new Star Wars universe. It's like, <laughs> so the New Republic runs the show, but the First Order seems to have all of this power and all of this might and all of this this military and, and all all this weaponry. And where where the New Republic? It shouldn't be left to the uh, the small resistance to to, to 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 keep things in check. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. But um, Snoke, so I'm not sure what Snoke is leader of, but nonetheless, Snoke, we actually caught the first glimpse of this character in this trailer. I mean, in sort of physical form, non-hologram form. Uh, what did you make of Snoke? Yeah, good practical effects, if that's all they were. If it was CG, then yeah, it was good CG. Um, yeah, happy to see. Uh, he, he actually looked, he, he looks okay. I think he, look, he looks uh, sort of decent as the twisted figure, bad guy. Um, and yeah, it was amusing to see him wearing his golden um, Hugh Hefner type uh, wraparound uh, gown that he's wearing, which we've already seen, I think, because um, some of the toys, I think there's a Lego set. There's a Lego set, yeah. Saw him wearing that. And so we, we, we see him wearing it. He's obviously in that scene with Ray, isn't he? Yeah, Ray's been attacked or levitated or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah. I think the best way to sum up uh, the intrigue generated by Supreme Leader Snoke is meh. Yeah, yeah, and he's got big shoes to fill. You know, um, he's essentially this trilogy's Emperor Palpatine. Huge shoes to fill. Uh, I'm not convinced they'll pull it off, but absolutely, I reserve judgment. So um, that I mean, that that's the last Jedi trailer. Again, it was, it was, it was a good trailer put together really well. Um, some interesting. Plot points were revealed, I think, and um, good to hear the new snippets of score from Johnny Williams. Um, 
and so obviously what happened was the next day um uh, sort of uh, pre pre-sales or, or, or for the box office opened and we secured our tickets um and it was quite interesting what they're doing so they're still trying to push 3d on everyone um you know seat and imax in 3d i believe uh they, they to justify um spending that extra and catching it in imax they claim that um some imax scenes were shot they don't say what percentage of the movie it's not going to be a great deal they don't say anything at all they just say some scenes were shot in imax so therefore you must see it in imax uh, 3D, we know the, uh, the movie was not shot with any 3D cameras. It's all post. So really, the best way to see this movie is if you are sort of that concerned with catching the IMAX scenes on an IMAX screen, uh, in, it's in 2D IMAX. So the only place you can, well, London at least, you can only see on a, on a 2D IMAX screen is the Science Museum. And actually, it's quite sneaky because unless you're prepared to watch the movie, which is, which opens in the middle of the week um, on a Wednesday or first on a Thursday, um, unless you're prepared to watch it in in the early morning, um, the only sort of evening screening on, uh, on 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 the opening day on the opening night, you're forced to buy tickets to a double bill, so a double bill of the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi, which I think comes to around forty or fifty quid. I'm not sure. So it's very sneaky the way they've gone about it. Well, listen, their margins on 3D screenings must be huge, right? Because we know that cinema generally is in trouble and mm -hmm. they're pulling out all the tricks, aren't they, to try and um, sort of uh, get get a, get back to where they used to be. Um, but yeah, listen, I'm not a big fan of 3D when you say to me that it wasn't even shot on 3D cameras, which I would, I would assume it, w it would not be, um, that's even less incentive to want to see it in 3D. I mean, the Avatar movies that are coming up, they actually will be shot with 3D technology on set, I believe. Yep. So, and that gives you a completely different experience to anything that's done post. Yeah, so that's that's fine if, if, if they've gone to that trouble. But with this film, we know that they've made it even though it's Star Wars, we know they've made it for a price. You know, they've got a budget on it. And um, 3D gives me headaches. It's not nice the way that they're lifting fans. Um, but we've got our tickets. We're seeing it on a large 2D screen. So I'm happy. Yep, yep. And I'm looking forward to it. You know, um, at the end of the day, <laughs> at this stage, it still doesn't really matter what Disney are doing to the Star Wars franchise. It's still one of those big event movies. You know, there's going to be a lot of excitement. You know that 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 weekend when it's released, and uh, I'm 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 really looking forward to it. But I'm trying to keep my expectations in check. Yeah, I think both of us will. I don't think either of us are truly in the of the belief that it's going to be a really good Star Wars film. It's probably going to disappoint us again. But I think we're past that point almost, aren't we? Certainly, looking at it now, just thinking, try and try and enjoy it. Hmm. Mm. So um, um, before we just move off Star Wars, um, so did you think the trailer gave away too much? The reason why I'm asking this is because Ryan Johnson made a very curious comment just before it was actually aired, saying that actually advising certain fans to not watch it because he, he, he feels he gives away too much, but he obviously understands that there's an enthusiasm to see more of the movie, which I thought was actually quite interesting that he would say something like that. Well, that's, that's that's pretty curious, isn't it? I mean, does does the director not have control over how they cut the trailer? 
I would have thought so. They do, but I guess. But I guess this this time it's the, the Disney juggernaut, isn't it? And they're calling all the shots. Unless he was joking, unless it, so, unless it was a strange sort of joke. Uh, yeah, yeah um, well, if it was, well, it's not really funny, is it? Um, it's, maybe it's just to get us all talking, you know, who knows? Well, actually, to be fair, I'm, I'm looking at the actual comment now. So there's a Twitter comment as well. So he says, I'm legitimately torn. If you want to come in clean, absolutely avoid it. Which is interesting. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We should, we should see. We're not that far away. Christmas will be here before we know it. Yeah, I mean, what, what is going on? I guess all will be revealed. All will be revealed, indeed. Um, okay, so let's move on to the real meat of this episode. Blade Runner 2049. We managed to see it. Uh, and I think we saw it on a decent screen. Again, we avoided the uh, 3D trap. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to see that movie in 3D. Oh, where to start? What are your thoughts of the Blade Runner sequel, which everyone seems to be calling a masterpiece? Well, first of all, you deserve some credit. It looks like the film has flopped at the box office. And um, I think you called that one. I I'm surprised that it's flopped. I thought the opening weekend, opening week, it would do more money than what it has done. I th think it's a shame that the film has flopped because, look, put quite frankly, as a mainstream Hollywood movie, which was you know made for a budget of 150 million, um, it's it's a good film because it's, it's got a lot of ideas and which you usually wouldn't find in a mainstream Hollywood film. And um, it tries to say some important things. Uh, from that point of view, it's a good film, you know. Now, the truth is that we have to judge this film in the context of it being a Blade Runner sequel. And as you mentioned, uh, it's almost unanimous, isn't it, with uh, the, uh, the film criticism fraternity if you like that this is a masterpiece as you say in fact there was even one idiot who said it was better than the original uh well look it's not in in context of it being Blade Runner sequel it's completely inadequate um I would say it's a three stars out of five film or a seven out of ten film oh. for me um it, it, it's inadequate visually it's inadequate on the score the plot is convoluted it's too long there's bits where it's boring um so if if I, if I was to be brutal i would say it's a failure wow okay <laughs> you see i uh, let's see i came out of that movie thinking oh, it was it was pretty good not as good as you know everyone was claiming it to be certainly not better than the original which it was not better than the original um and you see what happens is when when, when people hype things up and I generally become suspicious. So I think my immediate reaction to the movie would have been a lot more favorable had there not been that level of hype and some of the ridiculous statements that were being made. On the other hand, I've had time to think about it and I think it's a very good movie. Um, I, It's not a masterpiece. It might be a, a, a masterpiece in terms of a modern science fiction movie because we don't get really good modern science fiction movies we don't get them at all i can't think of the last great one so 
it was nice and it was refreshing to have a really good science fiction movie. Is it too long? Is it too drawn out? Absolutely. I, I feel like uh, Denis Villeneuve could have shaved off at least 40 minutes from that film. Um, and I suspect that one of the, re well, two, there's two reasons really why it's not doing well at the box office. The first one is the most obvious. The first Blade Runner movie didn't do well at the box office. So what made everyone think that this one would do well? Um, it's a film that's only going to appeal to fans of the first movie because there's a lot there. You need this, you need to have a lot of knowledge of what happened in that first movie. Um, and a lot of the, um, questions that that first movie raised. Um, and you can't, and, and a film that does well in the box office is a film that someone can casually go into, you know, you can bring a date, you can bring a group of friends. They haven't really seen the first one, but they can kind of follow what's going on. That, that's, that, that's normally a film that does well at the box office. Secondly, this is the film's too long and I don't think anyone would recommend it, uh, you know, word of mouth recommendation simply because it's so long and it's so intense but i thought it was an interesting movie i think it did it it expanded the the story of the first blade runner movie satisfactorily uh in fact satisfactory way i should say um i i'm trying not to spoil it are we allowed to spoil it I mean, surely if anyone wants to see it, they should have seen it by now, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think we can talk about spoilers, yeah. Right. Okay. So I liked the mystery about um, Rachel um, and and Deckard, and the fact that Rachel was some sort of prototype um, replicant who was able to reproduce. And I liked that idea and I liked the mystery behind it. And I liked how the, um, um, the arc of, um, the protagonist. So, um, Ryan Gosling, who plays a blade runner, um, who they reveal right at the beginning is, is, is himself a replicant. And I think they do that for a reason that that's revealed right at the beginning because his journey, um, is knowing full well that he's a replicant, but he starts to doubt the fact that he's a, a regular replicant with memories that have been implanted. He starts to question that and starts to believe that, no, he he may be this child of uh, Deckard and Rachel. It's almost a reverse. Of it's the a reverse. Exactly. It's a reverse. The original where Deckard begins, you know, he, he's, a, he's a human, but then he starts to question his own humanity as thing go, things go on. So it depends where you look at it, but it's, it's, it's the reverse. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I was actually, when, when, when I heard that, um, Ryan Gosling was, 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 uh, sort of, um, the lead in this movie, I thought, really? <laughs> I think I said that yeah, last yeah, time. You both, let's be honest. I was like, really? But he was okay. Granted, um, he had about two different expressions, um, that he used, um, on his face, um, and every scene it was in, but it was fine because, hey, he was a replicant. Um, but I think he did pretty well. I think everyone in the movie did pretty well, really. Um, no one stood out as bad. Um, Harrison Ford was obviously Harrison Ford loses charisma and he's on the screen. He's, 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 he steals it every single time. It was nice to see Rick Dicker back. Um, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with the amount of Deckard we had in this rather than him being in the majority of the movie, movie saving for the final act, I think works really well. 
Um, in actual fact, they it might, well they wouldn't have done this because commercially would have made sense, but it would have been better for me uh, not knowing that he was in this movie, saving it as a complete surprise. That would have been amazing, but they wouldn't have done that. You're right. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I just generally thought it was a good movie. I didn't think it was too bad visually. I mean, I I thought it was okay. Um, I uh, yeah, I said the performances were good, even right from the beginning. Um, you know, so the first scene is essentially, um, so um, Ryan Gosling's character, well, well, his serial number is K something or another, so he's referred to as K, and um, he's he's. He, he, he's basically um, hunting down a replicant um, a suspected replicant uh, uh, played by Dave Batista, who's hiding out in the farm uh, it's right at the beginning and even Dave Batista puts in a good performance in that one scene I mean it is really good and this, the, and this is the guy in WWE wrestling right I never thought he could act you know I've seen him in Gardens of the Galaxy but you know and, and, and so I think it was a good movie I think Bronson you're being a little bit harsh on it I mean, I understand why you're harsh on it. I understand that, you know, it doesn't deserve all of this hype. And when, when certain critics are making ridiculous statements saying that it's better than the first movie, you know, I don't agree with that at all. But I think, you know, it has its own merits. And I think it's a good film. Yeah, that, do you know what? There might be an element where I've been stung a little bit by the hype, the hyperbole that has the film's been treated to by these critics. Um, a couple of quick points first. The, you mentioned Harrison Ford, that, that he's only in it for 40 minutes, but you do realise he's actually slightly bigger on the poster than Ryan Gosling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, so uh, so that that's actually really dishonest from the studio. And it's actually Sony, not Warner Brothers. That was the other thing we got wrong, by the way, last week. I just remembered. I think we both said, yeah, it's Warner Brothers doing Blade Runner again, but it, it's not. It was Sony, wasn't it? Um, Is it not Warner it, Brothers? Oh, you mean the it, second one? Warner Brothers did the first, right? Am I wrong? Warner Brothers did the first one, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I think if I'm if I'm not uh, too uh, mistaken, that we mentioned that it was them again for this one, but it, it was Sony in conjunction, I think, with the Ridley Scott's production company. Um, but anyway, um, I, I I agree with ninety percent of what you've said there. It is a good film, and especially when you get a Hollywood tentpole movie which has this many ideas in it, and it's this arty, if you like, for want of use of a better word. Um, that's usually a good thing. Yeah, it's over long and it's drawn out. But my, my problems are, are thus. Look, the themes that the film explored, they're nothing new. The, the themes we've seen explored, not just before in Blade Runner, but in episodes of Star Trek or The Outer Limits. You know, the, Thematically, it was not anything new. You're right, the acting uniformly was good. I've made fun in the past because I, I don't particularly rate Ryan Gosling, but he, he was good in this. I think the scene he has when he's with uh, Deckard's daughter um, and he sort of comes to that um, epiphanal moment where he thinks he's actually born naturally, um, that's an excellent scene, the way he emotes and explodes and everything. I know sometimes it's easy for an actor to be showy in a scene where they get to shout, but no, he had to show kind of a slow burn in that scene and, and emote, and I thought he did it well. Okay. So credit, credit, okay. But my problem is this, okay. 
the original Blade Runner was made and released, you know, in the early 80s, released in 82, okay? And the opening shot, the Hades landscape, was done with models, matte paintings, in-camera effects, in-camera smoke, and motion control cameras, and brilliant photography by Ridley Scott and Jordan Cronenworth. Okay, it's 1982. Decades later, with all of the advances in special effects and the economies of scale in special effects and computer-generated images, I was expecting a talented director to come along and to at least match or come close to matching the original. Not only did it not do that, it fell three or four leagues below the original visually. Okay, well, it was so, paying homage to the original most of the time. Well, no... If it, yeah, it was trying to, I suppose, but it was doing it really badly. Let me give you a couple of examples here, and I'm, I'm going to get quite granular because the film, the effort that Denny Villeneuve and all of his crew made deserves respect, so I'm going to try and explain myself here. Okay, in the original movie, you know when the spinners are flying through the city and you can um, see buildings quite close up and everything's been covered in smoke by Ridley and it's been lit in a perfect way and you've got edge light everywhere and motion control cameras and you just get the feeling when you're looking at those shots that they're not on screen long enough you want to look at mm. everything longer you want you almost imagine you can see into the distance the same with the ground level shots that they that they shot on, on the back lot at Warner Brothers this film just covers everything. I thought it was in fog, but it's actually in dust. Everything's just covered in dust. You can't see more than a few hundred meters. It's a terrible visual choice by the director to do that. Okay, It's just not interesting to look at. The, the, the scenes at street level, when Ryan Gosling's eating something and those um, replicants who are prostitutes approach him, that whole thing just looks completely inadequate. Instead of being able to see into the distance and see the set going off into the distance, it just looks like it's closed off, like it's very obviously a set, so they're, they're not giving you um, enough visual information there. Um, and, and this is 30 years after the original. How, how can Ridley Scott and Jordan Cronenworth make the original look so good that even now you can, they can't match it? You know, I never expected them to beat it. Let me give you another example. Yeah, again, I want uh, I want to get granular on this. So, the scene where Deckard goes to meet Brian. Yeah, he goes to the police station. Yep. We see yep. we see the spinner. It's obviously a model descending, and then it, and then there's a crossfade into uh, Union Station, I think, in Los Angeles. Now, Union Station, very famous, been used in many films. It's got like Art Deco mixed with Californian Spanish revival style architecture right so Ridley picked that building lit it in a particular way set dressed it in a particular way and then he even built Bryant's office inside the flipping train station and the exposition shot when it crossfades from the exterior the model into the police station you completely buy it you completely buy that it's a cavernous police station in the future and then as the camera's moving down we find ourselves in Bryant's office which again is immaculately set dressed and lit and the scene kicks off. And the, by the time that scene finishes, I still, when I watch that film, think, oh, do you know what? I need more time to look at and process what I'm looking at when I see that scene. Hmm. This film, on the other hand, virtually every interior takes place in a room, which is like a catacomb or doesn't have any windows. There's nothing to look at. Jared Leto, the sets that he's on, they look like something left over from a perfume advert. 
Okay. You know, it's funny um, you mentioned that because, yeah, um, Wallace, his character. So you're right. So his, um, I, I don't know, his, his, his quarters or his, or the way his corporation runs there, their replicant production facility or whatever. And, and obviously, you're right. When you compare the way it looks visually and the light and everything to, you know, where Tyrell is introduced to us and, and, and we're introduced to Rachel the first time, that, that scene, Absolutely. if you remember. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, and look at Robin Wright Penn. Well, it's Robin Wright now, isn't it? Because she's divorced yep. from Sean Penn. Yep. You look at her office compared to Brian. Bryant's office was a homage to, you know, cop movies and detective movies. Robin Wright's office, I'm sorry, it looks like something out of Camino in Attack of the Clones. Okay. <laughs> and it doesn't even look as interesting as that. Now, George Lucas, he's been slammed for the prequels. The prequels visually are astonishing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so to have um, something that looks like a leftover from a Star Wars prequel for the police station, even where he's having the test administered, the baseline test, again, you're in a room with no windows. The room where he's doing the investigation, where he's looking into the past history of uh, wh- whoever the um, descendant of Deckard and Rachel might be, that's in a room with no windows. I mean, every scene as it went past, I thought, what is the director doing here? I want to look out the window and see the future. I want to see spinners and cars and things whizzing by like you might have done on Coruscant in Phantom Menace, right? Everything so, you yeah. if you notice in, in in that film when they're on Coruscant, um, apart from when they're in the, the Senate, there's windows. You can see out the windows. There's a world. There's a universe out there. And it just sells the whole thing to your to your mind. In this film, it's completely cack-handed. I mean, just think back to the scene where Ryan Gosling's outside his apartment on that balcony thing. The view from his balcony, it's terrible. We're just looking at walls, aren't we? It's and there's flat, double- yeah. yeah. So that, that's what I mean when I'm talking about visually. You know, the Bradbury building, okay, which is where um, the guy who designs those toys lives in the original Blade Runner. The Bradbury Sebastian, building. Yeah. Yeah. That building has been used in, again, I think it's a bit of Art Deco, a bit of like Dutch post-colonial revival style. Okay, that building has been used in so many TV shows and films, it's boring. The way Ridley used it in the original and the way he lit it is mind-blowing. I still watch that film and think, oh, I want to see more Mm. location. Compare it with the stuff they shot for this film. I think this film was shot in Budapest, by the way. Um, It's just nowhere near as interesting. The color palette is drab. The original, the color palette, it went the full gamut and it was done smartly. The color palette for this, drab i'm sorry in my opinion and this is going to really be controversial i think roger deakins is an overrated cinematographer okay i liked defense of the realm but i think he generally especially the work he does with the cohen brothers who i think are also overrated oh yeah i think o- so too yeah o- overrated it's fashionable for critics to turn around and say oh yes british cinematographer roger deakins yes he's photographed a lovely film yet again it's a triumph five stars i'm sorry <laughs> don't mean to sound arrogant but they're wrong they are wrong, okay? And the other thing is, the original film, the, another reason why I love it is it is a it is a neo-noir. In fact, it is a future noir. If you want to call Chinatown and Body Heat neo-noirs, which go in the tradition of The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon, or Kiss Me Deadly, or Double Indemnity, yeah? Blade Runner is a future noir, you know? Yeah, yep, future noir, yeah. Invented cyberpunk by itself. This movie, I know... He does a bit of detection work, Ryan Gosling. This film's basically an odyssey. It's not a detective movie. It's not a crime movie. It's an odyssey. It's one 
character's journey is an odyssey. And then suddenly, 45 minutes from the end, it switches to another guy and it becomes his odyssey. Deckards. And it's like, mm. and it, 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 Ryan Gosling's character just becomes like, right, do you know what? You, 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 you're like center stage. You just take a step into the shadows in the back here. He practically stands back and then he, then he dies, presumably. He, and that's well, it. You know what? I didn't assume he had died on those steps, but I read somewhere that that on, on the, I was reading widely about the film afterwards, seeing it. And apparently, yeah, that's him dying on the steps from his, the wounds that he's, um, suffered in, in the fight that he had with that uh, female murderous replicant mm. and that's just again that's just so cheap you had um uh Rucker Howard dying while rain was falling on him and here you've got ryan gosling is it supposed to be dust or is it supposed to be snow i don't know but even the same musical motif comes back in it's just it's just cheap i'm sorry and i'll tell you something else um now that we're talking about musical motifs the score what was going on with the score? Okay, yeah, it's no Vangelis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the yep. score was, yeah. The original score was mind-blowing. Nothing short of mind-blowing. Even now, it's mind-blowing. I, I still sometimes listen to some of those compositions. Even some of the compositions that were left out by Vangelis for that film that he composed, even they're mind-blowing. And if you remember, when Deckard's buying the whiskey after he's had that uh, fight, um, there's a 1930s, 1940s type tune playing in the background called yeah. one more kiss one more kiss yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that was actually composed by van Gettis as well yeah for, for the original Blade Runner. it wasn't actually a bona fide tune from the 40s i thought it was but it, no that, that was an original piece of music that was a homage obviously to the, that whole detective genre from the 40s so that score had wit this film what did it do it basically just throbs for two and a half hours it throbs and every now and again it reintroduces some of the motifs from the original score and i'm sorry it just again it looks like they had no idea what they were going to do so they just picked the phone up mr hans Zimmer, most famous hollywood composer we're going to throw this much money at you can you come and do this score he looks like he brought a protege with him i don't know who the other guy was i looked up his filmography he's never done anything of note before mm. the correct way of doing this would have been go out there find four avant-garde synth electronic composers not up and comers but 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 qualified you know Composers get them all to do two audition pieces, and then whoever's done the best, whoever seems to know what they're doing, you hire that guy, and then maybe get Hans Zimmer as a consultant to work alongside him to help him structure the score. Or then, why didn't they just get Van Gelis? Van Gelis, as 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 a composer, is still active. I'm I'm looking here on the internet. Van Gelis released an album in 2016. Why didn't they get him to do the score? Well. The, the reason why I didn't suggest that at the top is because I do also appreciate, with all due respect to Vangelis, um, creative juices can sometimes run dry. I mean, you look at Ridley Scott, when he, his best movies, he did a lot of his best work in, in the 70s and 80s, and let's face it, in the last 10 years, his output's not been anywhere near as good as that stuff. His, his last great movie was Gladiator, let's be honest. Um, and it's, it's possibly the same with Vangelis. I've got a few of his albums, and I mean, in the eighties, he was an institution by himself almost. So I don't blame them for not getting Vangelis, but there would have been surely a much more intelligent way of going about getting the right composer for this film instead of just giving us something that throbs for two hours. It just throbs. It's just <laughs> bass heavy. Yeah, I it's very bass heavy. Yeah, yeah. It's not mind blowing. It's it's kind of. Oh, it's kind of like. 
<laughs> kind of like that, you know, every now and again. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like industrial noise. And I don't want to... Listen, here, here's some respect for these people. Denny Villeneuve and everyone that he worked with, including Roger Deakins, okay? Um, this was not a cash grab, okay? The things we've criticized The Force Awakens for, for what it's done to Star Wars, or J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot for what it's done to Star Trek, for me, those were cash grabs. Uh, this film is definitely not a cash grab. It is a very arty, very thoughtful, um, precision piece of filmmaking, but it is completely inadequate as a Blade Runner sequel. Hmm. Okay. 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 I mean, I I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I, 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 you know, I, I, I. I still think it was a good movie. I still think it didn't let down the original Blade Runner too much. Um, a lot I'd of people. Give it seven out of ten. So I, yeah. I would agree with you. Seven out of ten means it was a, a good movie. And do you know what? I would watch it again when it when it is released or it's on Netflix or it's on Blu-ray. Do you know what? I'll I'll, I'll do the respect to these these people and, and Denny Villeneuve. I will I will buy it. I will I will happily sit down and watch it and, and give it. Um, I will give it multiple viewings because I respect it. Um, well, hopefully like, that's how it makes its money because it's not going to make them make its returns at the box office. It's losing money. Well, it's lost money. Yeah, and I, I'll also say this. I had an emotional reaction to the final scene because it was the first film. When I saw that when I was 12 years old, because I saw it on videotape, the director's cut. Yeah. And when it finished, it's so abrupt. I was like, what the hell? What? They've walked into a lift and it's finished. Then, years later, when I kept watching it obsessively, then it kind of, it was tragic, wasn't it? Because every time you watch it and it finishes, you just think, oh, the, the two of them, they're going to drive off into that sunset in that scene that's eventually cut in the director's cut, thank God. But they're going to be driving off Rachel and Deckard into the sunset, and they're basically doomed, aren't yep. they? And it's, it's tragic. At least this one ends with happiness and hope, doesn't it? And I did actually have an emotional reaction to that. And, and by the way, yeah, Harrison Ford was. So you're referring to you're referring to when Deckard basically, well, when Ryan Gosling's character leads um, Deckard Harrison Ford to his daughter. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. The final shot of Deckard, and you know, I never thought Harrison Ford would come back in a Blade Runner sequel because he hated the experience of making the original. The fact that he's come back reprised the character done absolute justice to the way he played Deckard by the way because it's not Harrison Ford that that's Deckard the way he's playing him as well um and uh, well it was the best script he ever read you know that right Harrison Ford that's what he said yeah apparently that's what he said that's what Ridley Scott says that he said (laughs) so right it's probably paraphrasing uh, (laughs) yeah god bless Ridley um but I had an emotional reaction to that I was happy that Deckard got a bit of peace and there was a bit of hope and um yeah happy days um so a lot of good things to say about it as well but i still think you should have walked away yeah i don't agree with you there why i I just think you know his daughter so she's 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 a scientist she's she's basically um an artist working on generating these memories that are implanted into replicants and she um she has some sort of um, uh, what's she got? She's got some sort of problem with her immune system or something like that. Some some autoimmune disorder or something something like that. Probably most likely because she is because of a unnatural conception. Let's that would say. make sense. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh, so she is essentially kept behind glass. Yeah, to keep her alive. To, yes, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. So I, I, I think this whole thing about Deckard saying that, you know, he didn't know what happened to Rachel because he had to sort of step back because if if he was involved in in, in sort of making arrangements as to where the child and, and Rachel were hiding, then it could be forced out of him if he was hunted down. Um, I thought it would have been more appropriate if he did sort of approach her, maybe look at her, maybe smile or exchange a glance and then just walk away. Yeah. No, but I think the way it does end, it doesn't just give him a happy ending. It gives her hope because, I mean, one of the things about the original, the, the scenes where you see Deckard go to meet Sebastian, right, in the Bradbury, that building is empty except for Sebastian. He's got it all to himself. And one of the reasons for that is everyone else has gone off world, right? Yep. Um, so in this film, the fact when she says she was not able to go off world, even though her parents were ready um, it's kind of a tragedy, you know, she's been left behind, but now she's got like some hope and some love and some family, you know, and it would have been, no, it would have been heartbreaking in my opinion, if, if Deckard had walked away actually. So I'm happy that, but look, they're, they're a family. I mean, how lovely is that for, for a guy who basically this film confirmed that Deckard is a replicant and then this girl who, because she doesn't come up from a wide enough gene pool because of her, parents she's got this autoimmune deficiency um of some well it's not AIDS but it's something like you know something like that yeah something like that yeah gap in her genome or whatever and and the, the, the two imperfect damned um people but they've got each other you know it's, that's kind of beautiful isn't it yeah yeah okay I, I see that point um so you said you, you just said that the film confirms Deccan's a replicant I, I don't think it does um, and a lot of people um, wonder, oh, going into this movie, which which version of, of the many versions of Blade Runner is canon? And I don't think any of them are. I mean, it does kind of play to the very plot about, um, so the idea, the insinuation, and um, Jared Leto's character implies this when he's trying to get Deckard to crack and reveal information about as to where the, where the where the child is the replicant child or the child that him and rachel produced is um um and um they, they do imply that deckard and rachel were probably both replicants made by tyrell to you know reproduce <laughs> yeah yeah, reproduce. yeah i mean we know rachel's that was a neck i mean so the film talks about um, so we have the Nexus 6 replicants in um, the first Blade Runner movie. And this one, at the beginning, we, we hear about um, this new generation with an open-ended lifespan, Nexus 8. If you remember when they're looking at the skeleton, which is Rachel, that they dig up from the ground, um, there's a serial, the serial number says something like N7. So she's obviously a Nexus 7. So the, the implication is her and perhaps they got Nexus 7 replicants that can do this sort of thing, which is why uh, Jared Leto is so obsessed about Tyrell's final trick, how to get replicants to reproduce. Because we hear that um, he's doing well selling replicants that are obedient, but he's not producing nearly enough. So to figure out that final trick would help his production. And um, I I think 
So if you think of it like that, yeah, it probably does confirm that Deckard and Rachel were one of the same kind of replicant and, you know, prototypes or, or what have you. But I think it is still open-ended. I think you can go into this film uh, believing that um, um, Deckard is a human and it still works. Um, I like that Denis Villeneuve left it uh, ambiguous, even though Ridley Scott will tell you now that Deckard is definitely a replicant and Harrison Ford will argue, actually, no, it doesn't work too well if Deckard is a rep replicant. Um, but it does sort of play to that. I don't know if you remember the when Blade Runner was released on Blu-ray, um, a few years ago, uh, I think every version was a nice box set. Every version was on there, and then they had some deleted scenes, and they had um, um, a, a, a deleted scene that obviously was part of the happy ending and the theatrical cut. And there was a little bit of dialogue between um, Deckard and Rachel as Deckard is driving her into the the countryside amongst greenery, and she asks him a question about or whether they're lovers, and he says, "Yes, they're lovers." Um, and she says something about, you know what, I, I think we were made for each other. And then it ends there. So I think they're playing to that. Right. That that would make sense. And yeah, I suppose you're right. It is still open-ended. You could just assume that the Wallace character, Neander Wallace, that he's basically being the devil. He's just saying whatever needs to be said in order to get what he wants. Mm. So uh, he could be lying his arse off to Deckard. That's, that's true. Okay. In my mind, he's a replicant all day long. Um, but I can see what you mean by how it's justifiable to say that it's still. I mean, the, the, the speculations that they make about what it means to be human and uh, all that sort of thing. I, I will say something I really liked about the film was um, the Joy character that Kay is basically in love with. Um, now, Which received a lot of criticism, but. Say what you're saying, and I'll go into that. Yeah, well, listen, I know there's an element of it, like he's in love with a blow-up doll, with a mm -hmm. sex toy, almost. But I took it a little bit as a commentary on our modern uh, sort of obsession with our smartphones and social media, because we almost get our human contact now through a brick, which is in our pockets, yep. which is electronic. Yep. And I think that's kind of what happening there as well i think if you take it as a for that it works brian gosling is human let's say or if he is, is a replicant with all the faculties that humans have what the hell is he doing him to basically fall in love with the responsive program that he's pretty stupid to be doing that um but yeah okay so you said that, that character and that subplot was controversial and it got a bit of criticism did it well yeah the one, what was the, that exactly? one of the criticisms of the movie is 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 that um women are objectified in it and the joy character is actually quite insulting but um you gotta remember the joy character joy is just essentially a product joy is a product yeah. it, it, it is a um, holographic companion in which um, one can carry in their pocket and it can, you know, it can be summoned at will or it can nag you to death as it seems to do in this movie. Um, but they have a real problem with that and they have a real problem with the, um, I don't know if you'll call it a sex scene, uh, where basically, so Joy is a hologram and Ryan Gosling's character is obviously a physical replicant. And you know what? he can't make love to a hologram. So somehow the hologram summons um, 
the prostitute replicant uh, to um, to come on over and she synchronizes with her and essentially we don't see it obviously it cuts away and we see the joy advertisement sort of winking at us winking at the camera but um, that's received a lot of criticism I think there's two or three things wrong with it I, I don't think it's that bad but first of all yeah it probably is unnecessary secondly I wasn't entirely sure what they were getting at thirdly how comes the hologram walked off by herself and went and got that hooker um, and then she was able to because he purchased the upgrade for her apparently right so could he just like send her off to like get the groceries if you wanted to or can she not do that because she's not hard or whatever you know? well yeah she wouldn't be able to carry him back <laughs> mm. well okay look I mean a lot of this stuff's already been explored in that Star Trek episode where Moriarty comes to life on off the holodeck let's be honest they're, oh, they're yeah. not they, they, they are not um, you know blazing a trail here which is what i was saying about thematically they're not really they haven't really gone anywhere new even though this might seem cutting edge to people this film um by the way i thought that was a bit of a contrived um sort of a couple of twists and turns the fact that the hooker just goes up to ryan gosling in the street she happens to be a replicant she happens to be with the uh with that movement you know that lady who's missing an eye they just happen to see Ryan Gosling on the street and then later on they come back into the plot. It just seems like, hang on, Los Angeles in the future is overpopulated, you know, millions and millions and millions of people and yet they happen to run into each other. It's lazy writing. It's just another thing which shows that this is a 7 out of 10 film, whereas the original, I would say, is 11 or 12 out of 10. That's how good Blade Runner is in my mind. Obviously, I'm hopelessly... Um, biased because I'm I'm in love with the film, um, but I think uh, you know this this movie is definitely several leagues below the original. Um, if we are to judge it solely as a Blade Runner sequel, if you just want me to judge it as a normal film, I'm, yeah, look, I'm glad I saw it. You know, yeah, I mean, it's a good, good science fiction movie, right? Give it that much. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it is, and um, it's got a couple of images that stick with you for days after and the opening on the on the farm is quite nice although this is one other criticism i've got of the film it's a little bit softcore the original you see a guy sticking his thumbs into another guy's eye sockets and you see stuff like that you see hands being stabbed and whatever no, the director's this, cut though theatrical version wasn't so violent if you're talking about um you know Rutger yeah but yeah but you know that opening scene on the farm, that was in the script for the original, right? And they, they dropped it eventually, probably for budgetary reasons. But in the original script, Deckard finds a replicant, kills him, and then removes his jaw from, from via his mouth. And then he reads like a serial number off the side of the jawbone. Yeah, mm. uh, I was kind of hoping they would show that image in this. You know, They just showed something a lot less gruesome. They just showed an eye being carried away in a bag, which has a serial number on it. We've seen that image before in Minority Report, you know. So, it's, you know, we've seen a, a Terminator plucking an eye out of his head in the original Terminator in 1984. It ain't exactly showing us resonant, new, dicey, dangerous, provocative images. It's, it kind of played it safe quite a lot. I mean, the only other graphic thing is when that facsimile of Rachel gets shot at close range in the head. That's kind of disturbing well, I the want way to, they focus. Yeah, I want to talk about that, actually. Um that was bloody impressive, I thought. Um, I, there was a scene where Jared Leto's character is trying to get Harrison Ford um, Deckard to crack. And 
uh, and reveal the, the whereabouts of his daughter. And in doing so, it seems that they... Um, so Jared Leto sends that other, that replicant... Oh, what's her name? The really aggressive one who works for him. I forget her name. But nonetheless, yeah. she stole the skeleton, uh-huh. didn't she? She stole the skeleton from the LAPD. Yeah? The skeleton yeah. of Rachel. And obviously, they've used that to recreate Rachel. Recreate the replicant Rachel. And you have a bit of CG magic there where a younger version of um, of, of Sean, Sean Young is, is, is brought to life. But it is her, isn't it? Who I mean, she... Well, you know what? I had to look that up because I said to you after we saw it that that must be Sean Young and she's just been de-aged like they did with Michael Douglas and Ant-Man. Yeah. But it's not. It's a model, a body double, and it's even a voice double. But they only got Sean Young back to train the stand-in in terms of how to act and walk. So it is an incredible job with very very little uncanny valley in my opinion it, yeah it, it, it they're getting really good at this and it's quite scary i mean it's way ahead of that you know that last shot in rogue one of young carrie fisher i mean i, I, I thought it was really convincing and um yeah there was a lot of i mean i mean she you know she spoke quite you know quite a lot quite often and 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 there was a little bit of movement and i i, I thought it was really good Generally, the effects were good. I don't think there was a single shot where I looked at it and thought this has been under-rendered. It, it was nice to see you know, the spinners. The, the way they were realized was good. And you can see the Peugeot logo in the front of one of them and stuff like that. And some nice touches in the film, as I say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I mean, I think the effects were, 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 they were adequate. They're pretty good. But yeah, you're right. Uh, that de-aging of Sean Young was, was just amazing. And, and the difference really was that um, when, when they do things like this, um, the the CG model, um, as realistic as as, as photorealistic as it, as it appears, tends to be very look very dead in the eyes. But I didn't get that vibe with this one. Um, I, I was very I was very impressed, and I'm actually I'm surprised to hear from you that actually it wasn't Sean Young. Yeah, I think it was a stand-in. Yeah, and I've used footage from the original Blade Runner. But yeah, I mean, like straight off the bat, when we saw it, I said to you, "They've got." I'm sure they've got Sean Young, and they've just de-aged her because that's how that's how convincing it looked. Mm, yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's Blade Runner, really. I, I haven't got much more to say about it. I mean, we we have slightly different opinions, but um, I I I think if we. It, it, we treat it as a standalone movie. I think we both agree that it's a pretty decent sci-fi film. And I think, I think it's one worth, worth seeing. I think it's worth people seeing, I think. Yeah. And uh, as I say, in the past, I've bantered quite a lot about Ryan Gosling, but he's good in this, you know, credit to him. And, um, I will sum this film up by saying it is a noble failure. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, Right, Bronson, I think that's pretty much it for this episode. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we uh, wrap things up? Um, no, not really. I, I suppose I'm looking forward to watching Gerald's Game, which is a Netflix movie, which is an adaptation of a Stephen King dark novella. Well, is there any other type of Stephen King novella? Dark, dark novella, I said. Um, so I think Netflix have adapted that finally into a movie. I'm, I'm going to try and watch that tomorrow. Looking forward to that. As you can tell, still 
trying to, to take in some Stephen King adaptations. Oh, there was actually one funny thing you, you might um, be interested in, uh, just talking about Blade Runner there. It's well known that Ridley Scott, uh, the Blade Runner aesthetic, the visuals that I've been going on and on about, um, I think he was so obsessed with them that he kind of repeated them again in at least two other films, Black Rain and Someone to Watch Over Me, mm. uh, two films that have got a lot in common with Blade Runner. And uh, there's also um, something which a lot of listeners, especially if they're millennials, will not know, uh, is that Ridley Scott directed an advert for Pepsi in the 80s, which starred Don Johnson. And uh, Don Johnson never quite managed to shake off the shackles of the character he used to play in Miami Vice, the TV show. Uh, Crockett, of course, was the character. Um, and this was another example of why. So th this Pepsi advert, it's got Don Johnson in it, but he's actually playing Crockett. So he's walking around in like espadrilles and a white suit, and he's driving around in his Ferrari Testarossa. Uh, the Testarossa is completely in shadow, by the way, because they're not allowed to show the Ferrari logo, I guess, because I haven't got the uh, the license to do that. But he, he's not driving around with, with Philip Michael Thomas, the, uh, the guy who played Tubbs. He's actually driving around with Glenn Frey, who used to be in the Eagles and had a moderately successful solo career in the 80s. And uh, Glenn Frey, I, I think, also had a cameo quite famously in, in an episode of Miami Vice. But anyway, it's, it's worth um, finding that advert and watching it because the lighting schemes in it are very similar to Blade Runner. And uh, as I say, Ridley Scott directed it. He probably did the, uh, the cinematography himself or, or, or somebody whom he would have been very closely supervising. But the thing that I didn't know until a couple of weeks ago, which will probably make you laugh, or, or any of our listeners, if they're uh, children of the 80s, is that, so I thought Miami Vice um, and Don Johnson, I thought they were firmly in with Pepsi. Yeah, just like Michael Jackson in the 80s, just like Optimus Prime. Right. Uh, you know, people might remember pepsi prime it was a promo in the 80s you collect enough pepsi bottles you can get a pepsi optimus prime anyway um there's actually a coca-cola advert and you can tell it's from like 89 or something um it must have been during the last season of Miami vice because in this coca-cola advert don johnson's in it and he, he he doesn't have his short back and sides anymore he's got his mullet by now yeah and he, and he looks a bit bloated, I must say, because he basically went through the whole of 84 to 89 partying, pretty much, by his own admission. Uh, he, he was a caner, let's be honest. We, we, can, we can tell. Um, God bless him. So uh, the funny thing is, I don't know if you remember, in the late 80s, early 90s, the Pepsi-Coke rivalry got really aggressive to the point where this advert I'm talking about, the Coke advert, there's a shot in it, for example, there's a bunch of palisades or, or parasols, whatever you want to call them, outside a cafe and they've all got the Pepsi logo on them and the Palisades close up and then when they open they've been replaced with the Coca-Cola logo yeah alright stuff like this and then you just see a snippet of Don Johnson walking onto a boat so it's obviously like they're trying to make it look like Crockett again because obviously he lived in a marina on a boat which was called the St. Vitus Dance I think um, and then the pretty much the last shot of this advert is Don Johnson sipping Coca-Cola and looking at the camera and going, saying something like, this really is the real thing. It's <laughs> sticking one right in the eye of Pepsi. And um, listen, it might sound sad, as you I can tell. I wonder how much money exchange hands. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, I mean, he, he must have. I mean, he was the John Travolta of the 80s, wasn't he? Let's be honest. He, he was everywhere and he was the coolest guy. And uh, you, you can tell I have no life because stuff like this blows my mind. When I saw that the other week, I thought... 
flipping fantastic. All right, I'm going to dig those commercials out and I will put a link to them in the show notes. Why not? Should be easy to find, right? Brilliant. I, I think our listeners, as I say, if they're children of the 80s, they'll love that stuff. Awesome. I'll do that then. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bronson, for joining us again. And thank you guys for listening to us for goodness knows how long this episode will be. But thank you so much. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to us, please do so. You will find instructions on our website, which is intersectioncast.com. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Uh, our Facebook page is facebook.com slash intersectioncast or find us on Twitter. Uh, the username is at Let's Intersect. If you have any feedback, any questions, anything you might want us to cover in any future editions, you can drop us an email, which is feedback at intersectioncast.com and use that same address to uh, drop us a Skype voicemail. So thanks again, Bronson. Um, look forward to uh, you joining us again soon to discuss more in uh, in terms of film and TV. Hopefully we'll have, uh, um, well, we've got the run up to Star Wars, but what else have we got to look forward to before then? Well, you've got Thor Ragnarok, you've got the Justice League coming up. Um, um, I plan on seeing the Justice League at the, the theatre. I'm not sure if I will do the same with Thor Ragnarok. I mean, I've I've read the, the Planet Hulk comic and I've seen the cartoon of it, so I'm not that motivated to see Thor. I think you wanted to see it, but come what may, I'm sure we will uh, we will discuss. I will have no choice but to see Thor because of my children. Um, is that out next week? Is that out for half term? Or my, I'm not sure. I know that this weekend uh, the My Little Pony movie is out because my niece wanted me to take her to that. Uh, I'm sure Thor. It's half term next week, is it, or the week after? No, it's next. Well, it starts from yeah. They break up tomorrow, I think. Well, I, w- I would assume that the uh, the promo stuff for Thor Ragnarok would have been in Top Gear by now, but it hasn't been. So I'm assuming it's a few weeks away yet. Okay. The. Uh... I think they missed a trick there. Let me just double check that, actually. Yeah, you're right. Tuesday the 24th. No, 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 no. It is out next week. Oh, wow. Yeah, Tuesday. We haven't seen it plastered all over buses and billboards and the internet. Uh, I haven't. Have you? No, not really. I mean, I saw... I mean, we, 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 we the trailer played before Blade Runner, but that's about it. I've seen nothing on TV or... You're right, no no posters or anything like that. Are Marvel getting complacent? Are they taking it for granted that uh, uh, the Marvel Universe is uh, super successful? Maybe. Pure confidence, I don't know. But yeah, I've, I've got here the first showing on the 24th. So yeah, yeah, I'll have some opinions on that. You're not going to catch that one in the cinema? Or was it my uh, little pony I- for you? I think you have to draw. You have to draw a line somewhere. Um, if I see My Little Pony, it's because I have to. Um, yeah, listen, I'm, I can't put down my money for every single one of these films because I, I'm not entirely happy about the dumbing down of mainstream cinema anyway by Hollywood. But if I am effectively casting a vote for them to carry on making stuff like this on a consistent basis, that that's effectively what I'm doing if I buy a cinema ticket for each one of these films, then I, that would make me a hypocrite. So I try to draw a line. Justice League I can't resist because it's got Batman and Superman in it. 
Star Wars, naturally, I'll see that. But I'm going to draw a line in the sand here. And Thor Ragnarok, you can wait until you're on DVD or Netflix. <laughs> okay. Well, me, I have no choice. So I'll, I'll, I'll be feeding back with my views on, on, on the, uh, the third Thor movie. But um, again, thanks, guys, for joining us. And um, until the next time, that's a wrap. The intersection. The intersection.